Futures trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Opinions and statements of guests not affiliated with Everag are their own and do not reflect the views of Everag. The accuracy of their statements cannot be guaranteed by Everag. Hello, and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights. Each week, we talk with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is Wednesday, January 4th. March 23 corn is trading 6.53 and 3 quarters, down 16 and 3 quarters cents. March 23 soybeans are down 9 and a quarter cents, trading 14.83 even. If you recall, a few weeks ago, I forecasted the Packers were going to make the playoffs. And this week, their playoff futures are on the line as they play the lowly Lions on Sunday afternoon. Go Pack Go! Turning to our guest, this week it's our privilege to have Scott Irwin, an ag economist who holds the Lawrence J. Norton Chair of Agricultural Marketing at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Thanks for joining us today, Scott. Oh, I'm really glad to be here. I do have to notice that I'm a very dedicated Chicago Bears fan. I'm sorry about that. Once again, the Bears aren't going to make the playoffs. <laughs> we have endured uh, a lot of humiliation uh, <laughs> over uh, many years, uh, but we keep the faith. Someday it'll turn around. <laughs> no, we hope so for, for your sake. But Scott, appreciate you joining us. You have written the book quite literally, on futures trading. In your expert opinion, what factors do you see having the biggest impact on grain futures this year? Well, I think you have to, I would start at the macro level and say in the most basic way I can put it is the global economy, which of course feeds into in a direct way into grain markets, is going to go through, is started, and is going to continue to go through a profound adjustment due to the end of what I just call the ultra-cheap money era that we've been in since basically 2008. That era is ending as not only the U.S. monetary authorities, but those around the globe have to address the spike in inflation that we've seen. And I, so I will put that as number one, we've seen it just in recent days with the value of the dollar strengthening. You know, I think there's a huge bet going on in worldwide macro markets and affects our grain markets that inflation is going to taper pretty quickly, which will allow a tapering of further increases in interest rates by the U.S. Federal Reserve. I'm more sanguine that that's going to happen. I think the markets are on the optimistic side leaning. And so that gives me an overall kind of bearish lean to my analysis of grain markets and most markets going forward, because every signal that we have today is that the Fed is serious about this and that they understand that this is probably going to cause a U.S. and global recession, and that they're willing to live with that to drive us as quickly as we can back into their more acceptable 2 to 4% inflation range. So that's the number one factor. Uh, that's, that, that's the global macro uh, interest rate inflation outlook. 
then the second factor that I would point out is it is a tremendous wild card, as it has been since February 24th, 2022, is uh, the Ukraine-Russia war. And, you know, that's added enormous volatility to global grain markets and grain futures prices. Things have settled into a bit of a stalemate and equilibrium there for now. Ukraine's managing to get more and more grain out of the ports that they now control. We now know that there's pretty much full access to Russia's wheat around the globe. Very different story in crude oil. But boy, that's a situation that can reverse on a dime. My own personal belief is that something big is going to be up there this winter with one or both sides launching major offensives. And what probably troubles me the most is that history teaches us that it's very hard to contain these kind of big wars once they get started. They have kind of a momentum and dynamic all of their own. Make no mistake, this is a big war. So that's that's number two, and it's a real wild card. Uh, number three, I think, is probably the likely very large size of Brazilian corn and soybean crops are other big factors that I think are, are going to key in. And one that nobody's really talking about, and I've been wrong the last couple of years with the high prices, so I want to say that right up front. But I've been looking for more acreage expansion, particularly for corn and soybeans the last couple of years than we have seen. And maybe it's never going to arrive in the U.S., but we've been stuck at or below 180 million acres combined planted acreage for corn and soybeans for quite some time. And, you know, will this be the year that we bust through that? If we were to see a shift or an addition of acres, where do you suspect that would come from? Well, you know, what happens is it's, it's a little bit everywhere is part of the answer. You know, a few hundred thousand acres in places like Iowa and Illinois, and then lots of other places, they begin to add up. But the big change would have to occur in the Great Plains, in the Western areas where you would see some switch to the corn and soybeans. I'm assuming largely from wheat? Yes, and small grains. But of course, that process is obviously very complicated by the ongoing large drought in the Great Plains. But, you know, it's a dynamic situation, and that's why, you know, you want to watch the winter weather out there to see do they get some diminishing of the drought conditions, which will help the winter wheat, which has been in pretty bad shape. But, you know, I could see a scenario where they get enough that they go, well, let's tear up the wheat and plant some soybeans instead in some parts of, of this and gamble on summer weather instead of a wheat crop that's in pretty poor shape. I don't know. I, you know, and so I'm not thinking about huge acreage shifts, but maybe we could get a two or three million acre surprise from what the market's currently expecting for combined corn and soybean acreage when you add all those up. We haven't seen it the last couple of years with the very high prices that we've seen. And also pushing against that is the tremendous rise in input costs and the lower prices that we're expecting in the market is showing right now for the 2023 crop. You know, we're looking at much lower margins. But you could have said that at various stages before planting for the uh, 2021 and 22 crops 
So at some point, do farmers become more aggressive because they've got a lot of cash to deploy and we really start pushing production out because basically anyone who did that the last couple of years has been handsomely rewarded. So will that push us into a position of a bit higher acreage than everybody's expecting now? We'll see. There's certainly a lot of dynamics that need to play out in the grain market. It's why we constantly talk to guys about managing risk and we're not in the the, the business of predicting markets. That's a, a bit of a fool's errand, as you've pointed out, all the variables. And then the things that we, we don't even think about that could come in, into play, certainly. One of the things that has caused some waves in the grain market here lately is the EPA has come out with its initial proposal on the renewable fuels standard and its blend mandates. And that kind of caused soybeans to move a little bit lower, but it had a big impact on the soybean oil market very specifically. How do you see that playing out in the coming years, this push towards you know, utilizing soybean oil for sustainable diesel? That's an incredibly interesting question, Britt. Let me back up and take people through, first off, what's behind the renewable diesel boom. And then with that context, then we can talk about why was the market so disappointed when those RVOs for the next three years were announced? So first off, what's driving the renewable diesel boom is two things. It's the increase in the RFS requirements for biomass-based diesel which can be either renewable diesel, sometimes also called HVO or green diesel, and what I call FAME biodiesel, conventional biodiesel that we're used to. So you've got RFS incentives, but the big thing that's really been driving RD, renewable diesel, is the credits from the low carbon fuel standard in California. Uh, renewable diesel is receives basically a very low carbon intensity score out there. So renewable diesel generates a lot of credits. And so when you add these things together, you get a huge incentive for renewable diesel. And big energy companies have decided to make that their play in the renewable liquid fuel area for now. There's also a push. It's coming from sustainable aviation fuel, which is closely related to renewable diesel. But those are the two things that are driving it. And so we've had just a tremendous building boom of renewable diesel plants. You know, production capacity here domestically just a few years ago was under 500 million gallons a year. Now we're talking about three or four billion gallons of capacity very quickly. And undoubtedly, the capacity that's built has come online the last couple of years, has completely changed, has been big enough that has completely changed the pricing dynamics in the soybean complex globally. Uh, here in the U.S., we uh, typically in the past saw about a third of the crush value of soybeans from oil and two thirds from meal. Now it's half and half. That's a huge change uh, due to this renewable diesel boom. So that's what's happened. So in that environment, how in the world could everybody get so disappointed with the EPA numbers? Well, basically, it's a story of, uh, the way I like to put it, the market had built up an expectation 
basically that whatever renewable diesel capacity that was going to get built would be accommodated or incorporated into the mandates going forward. Basically, I call it build it and the EPA will mandate it. And it turns out that the EPA was not nearly as accommodating of the renewable diesel expansion in production as people expected. And so it was kind of on one day when everybody kind of said, oh my gosh, we may be overdoing uh, this building of renewable diesel capacity. And so you had a major adjustment going on. But at the same time, it's really important to keep in mind that basically, I think, you know, all of this kind of got a little carried away in the market. I was really surprised because I looked at the market dynamics and I just never saw how all of these renewable plants could ever get built and used because there just was too much pressure on feedstock markets. And so I think there's kind of some rationalization of plans that are going on right now. And if we do get a recession in 2023, as a lot of signals indicate, there'll be further rationalization there. But even with all that, it's still a boom and it's an important additional demand in world veg oil and especially soybean oil markets. So hopefully that wasn't too long-winded, but that's, that's, that's what happened. How do you see this on a global scale? Obviously, in the U.S., we're getting, you know, some what I would call grassroots adoption, which, you know, you alluded to with what's going on in California. But globally, where are they at in this kind of sustainable, renewable fuel dynamic? Well, there's just a lot of variability. It's really important and and probably has the largest market penetration in Europe. And so, you know, these plants are being built all around the world. So it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. I think that the energy companies play here is obviously very long run. These are multi-billion dollar investments they're making. And my, it's very hard to get behind their walls, firewalls of what is their real strategies. But I think what they really have their eyes on long run, when you look 10, 15, 20 years down the road is the sustainable aviation fuel market. That's where I think these things will really pay off in the long run. Because, you know, at that time scale, there's a lot of uncertainty what the surface transportation liquid fuel demand is going to look like with penetration of EVs for cars and light duty trucks and maybe even beginning by then in long haul trucking. We, we, we don't know, but there's a lot of alternatives being considered. I'd like to say, though, you know, we're going to be using aviation fuel and jets until we get dilithium crystals from Star Trek. Uh, so we're, we're going to be, uh, I don't know, who wants to raise your hand if you want to be the first person on an electric-powered airplane? <laughs> Not me. Agreed. I, I think we're going to have a really hard time getting people on that plane. Uh for a long, long time. So this is a huge market. I believe the U.S. jet fuel market's over 25 billion gallons. And globally, I, I know it's way over 100 billion gallons. It's a huge market. And uh, if we're serious about decarbonizing that market, there's really no alternative. You know, demand's going to continue to increase. Use is going to continue to increase in that market. And liquid biofuels are the only alternative. 
And not a lot of comment to it, but some of the biggest incentives in the recent Inflation Reduction Act were put in place for sustainable aviation fuel, the tax credit. So that's my sense of, you know, the, where the long-run use of these renewable diesel production technologies are going to be find their home. And they're different names, but in terms of the fuels, there's really a relatively slight difference in chemical composition between renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, there's a little bit different refining process that has to go on. It's more expensive to make the jet fuel, but it's in practical terms, it's not much difference. And so that's what I see. But that's that's kind of a long run. That's that's the sustainable aviation fuel market right now is very small. But it's super interesting because there's competitors there for renewable diesel production. The uh, ethanol industry is going in in a major way trying to get a piece of that sustainable aviation fuel market as well by converting ethanol into sustainable aviation fuel. It can be done. It's really interesting, uh, but it hasn't really been proven at an industrial scale yet. Certainly an interesting potential market dynamic to watch because obviously it it could have a big impact on the local pricing of, of soybeans. We've already seen that ultimately an impact on how acres play out and, and so on and so forth. I want to go back to a comment you've made a few times, and I think this is something that has gotten a lot of attention, not just in the grain market space, but also certainly on the you know the macroeconomics front. You mentioned a recession and the strong possibility, or the a lot of the indicators are pointing towards a, a potential recession and the impact that could have on the grains. I want to dig into that just a little bit deeper. In the past. When we've gone through a recession, how has that played out in the grain markets? Well, it's basically an aggregate demand or income problem. You know, you see it, you'll see a decrease in demand for meat, and then that will eventually feed through into weaker feed demand for soybean meal and feed grains. That mechanism will happen in a recession. And a relatively new one, historically, it will also feed into directly into ethanol use because basically ethanol, you know, every gallon of gasoline in the United States contains 10% ethanol, actually a little bit more now, but that's a good rule of thumb. So miles traveled and gasoline use will decline in a recession and that will then translate into weaker ethanol grind. Basically, the same factors occur domestically and internationally. And I think the combination of our current very high, in particular, feed grain prices is already showing up with weaker demand globally in this what I'll call recessionary environment. I mean, we're seeing really poor export figures recently in general uh, for U.S. corn. And I don't think that's an accident in a recessionary environment, and the fact that those are very high prices historically, like you quoted at the beginning of the, the, the podcast, your corn prices are still well over $6, uh, even higher further west in the Corn Belt. So that's how it happens. I think another dynamic that hasn't been mentioned that could be included in that discussion as well, because they've had such a profound impact on grain prices, is how the fund money or the managed money views the commodity space. They've basically held a long position in corn and soybeans since September of 2020. 
and continue to have a, a somewhat long position, although relatively modest by comparison, their interest in the commodity space could be very interesting in a recession as well and the impact that could have. Certainly, there's a possibility for some impact there, but I've, I've done a lot of research on that question, and it's hard for me to find much correlation in the long run between the positions of any group of traders in aggregate. I know traders are obsessed with following those money flows from different trader groups, but I can't find much of statistical significance one way or another. So I honestly don't pay much attention to those. I, I, I like to focus, being an economist, on the underlying supply and demand fundamentals. And uh, maybe those will have a marginal impact at, at, at times, but I'm, a, I'm kind of skeptical of those factors. Well, we've certainly got a, a bit of a boxing match going on between those two big factors of supply and demand right now. Tight supplies, but lackluster demand at best, which you alluded to. So we'll see how that continues to play out in, in 2023 as we turn the calendar here. Scott, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for your time. If listeners would like to learn more about your work, how can they best do that? Well, probably three easy ways. Uh, one, I have a website. It's just scotthirwin.com. scotthirwin.com. Really easy. Go there and everything is there. I'm also very active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is uh, at Scott Irwin UI. You'll find me there on a daily basis. And then I regularly contribute to our Farm.Doc daily site in terms of where we have daily articles on all sorts of topics dealing with grain markets and farm economics. On a separate but related note, you've got a new book coming out that I think our listeners would be interested in hearing about. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. The book is entitled Back to the Futures. Crashing Dirt Bikes, Chasing Cows, and Unraveling the Mystery of Commodity Futures Markets. And what it's intended to be is a fun and entertaining way to learn about commodity futures markets. It's explicitly directed to a general non-academic audience. And so hopefully there's a lot of funny stories about growing up somewhat reckless on the farm in the 1960s and 70s and my crazy friends out in Iowa. But it does have a a, a, a serious purpose. I try to, you know, kind of bring people along on my life's journey of trying to understand these markets and how they work and uh, how people can use them. And so fun and educational, hopefully, and it should be out, hopefully, uh, if everything goes well sometime in February. Scott, if listeners are interested in getting a copy of your book when it comes out, how can they best do that? Well, it's easy. I have a section on my website, scotthirwin.com, for books. And just click on that link and it'll take you to it. Uh, or you can just go directly to Amazon and search for Scott Irwin and Back to the Futures. And I'm sure it'll, it'll come up. Wonderful. Well, we certainly uh, look forward to looking at some of that information. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, subscribe to our podcast, share it with a friend, or give us a review. Thank you to Corey Romero, our producer, and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's show.